The Onyx One Month DAP program evaluated Resolute Onyx DES in about 1,700 complex high bleed and risk patients with one month DAP. Visit Medtronic.com backslash Onyx One program to see the data. Resolute Onyx DES is not currently indicated for high bleed and risk patients on one month DAP in the United States. You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Heart Sounds for August 2020. I'm your host, Shelley Wood, the managing editor at TCTMD. A big thanks to Caitlin Cox, who stepped in to host last month so I could have some time off, in which I went absolutely nowhere doing nothing interesting, as you do during COVID-19. Returning to our regular format this month, I'm going to play you some audio clips from some of the interviews the TCTMD reporters did to pull together the news. This month, the top stories on TCTMD were a mix of cardiovascular topics and SARS-CoV-2. I'm going to take that as a promising sign that in some parts of the world, even as new infections continue to simmer, they've at least slowed down enough to allow cardiologists to return, at least partially, to something closer to normal. But as a steady stream of studies published in the medical literature make clear, COVID-19 is likely to have some kind of lasting footprint on the heart. Returning to cardiology 24-7, whenever that happens, will still mean reckoning at some level with this virus. That's not a bad place to start. Right at the end of July, I covered a COVID-19 cardiac MRI paper in JAMA Cardiology by Valentina Puntman and colleagues from the University Hospital Frankfurt in Germany. I've spoken to a lot of other people over the month of August, and in so many of those conversations, people referenced the Puntman paper, because its conclusions were disturbing. Among 100 patients who'd recovered from COVID-19, including two-thirds who'd never been hospitalized, 78% had detectable high-sensitivity troponin, despite getting tested two to three months after their COVID diagnosis. Abnormalities were seen in the same percentage of patients on cardiac MRI. And these patients were relatively young, ranging in age from 45 to 53. The question of just how COVID-19 might cause lingering, even permanent damage to the heart is on everyone's mind, which is why this study has rattled everyone's cage. But shortly after publication, Graham Cole and Daryl Francis of Imperial College London took to Twitter to call out problems with the numbers and graphics in the paper, pointing out that they could not, statistically, be accurate. This posed a bit of a quandary for me as a journalist. If this paper was wholly fabricated, I obviously shouldn't report on it, never mind that I'd done several interviews and had a story drafted. There has been plenty of controversy during the COVID-19 era over papers that have been rushed to print and published based on shoddy science and in some cases whole-scale retractions when data could not be verified. On the other hand, if there was real evidence that heart damage occurs with this virus, even in the setting of more mild illness, I think that's information that should be out in the world, particularly as stay-at-home orders have eased and more and more young people are getting sick. I had spoken with Dr. Puntman the day before by Zoom, so I could see her face when she spoke passionately about the need to follow these patients and potentially intervene early to protect the heart. On the basis of that face-to-face -face interview and the potential import of the findings, I made the call that I would still go ahead with the story, but I would speak with Dr. Cole to hear his concerns about the work. 
I also reached back out to Dr. Puntman, only to find out that she was unaware of the tweetorama taking place on social media critiquing her paper, which does raise some questions about the use of Twitter to question a paper's integrity. You might remember Michael Reardon's feature story on this topic, Trial by Twitter, back in March. Anyhow, I've since heard from the authors that they are in contact with JAMA Cardiology. It's an open question whether this paper will end up being corrected in some way or retracted altogether. But based on my conversation with Dr. Puntman, as well as other papers that are pointing in a similar direction, I'm persuaded that this virus is having some detectable impact on the heart, and how long that might last or what should be done about it remains to be seen. Here's part of my conversation with Dr. Puntman. We were very busy so far in terms of COVID with the acute presentation. We haven't actually got our hands around the what comes afterwards. And this is the next step. And that's why I think our results are so important because actually it's telling us there is a good chance. Obviously, I cannot say that this is going to happen because we don't have the outcome data yet. But what we so I, I always draw parallels with uh, with flu, for instance, swine flu. Uh, that was also one of those those moments where all of a sudden we saw an amazing amount of myocarditis and then obviously also heart failure. So for me, this is a little bit of a deja vu, and I expect that COVID is also going to be an important driver of inflammatory cardiomyopathies and, and the heart failure in the future. But given that this is on such a huge scale, we need to be fast. We need to start making sure that we are diagnosing people early, early and intervening early, early. If you're a TCTMD subscriber, you'll know we've long been following the concerns raised about so-called missing data from the published three-year Excel trial results. Specifically, as we reported last year, rates of myocardial infarction in Excel, using the third universal definition, which was pre-specified as a secondary endpoint in the trial design, weren't in the published manuscript. Now, as part of a series of letters in the New England Journal of Medicine, the Excel investigators have provided the UDMI data, and they certainly look a bit different. As opposed to the protocol definition, where there was no statistical difference in the risk of MI between the two revascularization approaches at five years, when the third universal definition was used, there were 89 MIs in the PCI-treated patients for a rate of 9.6%, and 43 MIs, 4.7%, in the surgical arm. With respect to procedural MIs using the universal definition, there were more than double in the PCI arm compared with surgery, 3.3% versus 1.4%. Speaking with TCTMD's Michael O'Reardon, lead investigator Greg Stone of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York, insisted that the higher rate of UDMI with PCI than with surgery doesn't change the overall interpretation of the study results. Study interpretation is always based on the primary endpoint, and the primary endpoint used a definition of myocardial infarction, which signified um, extensive amount of myonecrosis after both PCI and cabbage that was agreed upon by the surgical and interventional leadership of Excel. And every trial, of course, can have different um, outcomes if you change the definitions of different endpoints. Uh, you saw that in the ischemia trial, uh-huh. um, but the ischemia trial, of course, relies on its primary endpoint based on the primary definition, and there was a very good reason that the leadership agreed on the primary definition. 
The cardiac surgeon, Mark Ruel, of the University of Ottawa Heart Institute in Canada, told Mike that the new data does shift his views, in part because he was never particularly satisfied with the modified sky definition of MI chosen by the Excel investigators in the first place. Here's Ruel. You know, the sky definition was an optimal definition. I'm not saying whether it was purposely so, but it was really optimal in order for Excel to meet its non-inferiority endpoint. Uh, what I can say is that you know the, the sky definition had not been used before Excel, essentially not in, in no major venue, and in fact has not since either. And the fourth iteration of the universal definition of MI came out, as you know, about uh, two years ago now. Mm -hmm. And it also did not espouse the sky definition. So, mm. you know, this at the very least raises eyebrows that, you know, the whether purposely or not, right. that the definition was optimized or, or certainly was optimal for the Excel trial to yeah. show uh, what it wanted to show. Let's move to another topic that never seems to be fully resolved, although at this point it's far less controversial. A large network meta-analysis published in circulation this month backs up calls for a paradigm shift in how long dual antiplatelet therapy should be continued after PCI with drug-eluting stents. The analysis combined 24 trials of more than 79,000 patients, had a median follow-up of 18 months, and compared different durations of doubt. Led by Safi Khan of West Virginia University in Morgantown, the authors found that using DAPT for more than 12 months was associated with a higher risk of major bleeding compared with all other DAPT durations, except in patients with ACS. Importantly, there were no significant differences in mortality between the different DAPT strategies. Combining so many different types of trial designs, techniques, antiplatelet regimens, and patient populations in a single meta-analysis does make it difficult to draw firm conclusions, a point made by Ajay Kirchene of Columbia University in New York. But Khan, speaking with TCTMD's Laura McEwen, believes the evidence points in one direction. I think this current meta-analysis should influence the contemporary practice and the physician moving forward should consider that discontinuing the dual antiplatelet therapy at a short term less than six months and consider continuing p2y12 inhibitor monotherapy instead of aspirin but where they feel like that there is a high ischemic risk acs recent stent thrombosis and the bleeding risk is fairly low they can consider extending dual antiplatelet therapy beyond 12 months uh -huh. My personal perception is that perhaps it's going to influence the upcoming um, professional cardiovascular guidelines because the current uh, guidelines actually represent 12-month DAP in the setting of ACS and 6-month DAP in the setting of stable ischemic disease and the de-escalation DAP followed by repeat, uh, aspirin monotherapy. I believe this uh, new meta-analysis should be able to inform a um, new paradigm shift for these guidelines. Judge me as you like, but I found it uplifting that one of TCTMD's most read stories in August was our coverage of an AHA statement on marijuana. As Yael Maxwell wrote, both medical and recreational use of cannabis is increasing around the U.S., and heck, it's been legalized in some parts of the world, including where I live, in Canada. All the more reason, say the authors, that more research and education is needed. Most of the available literature is observational and focuses on smoking cannabis rather than edibles. 
and the limited studies published so far point to several safety signals associated with cardiovascular conditions such as ACS, cerebrovascular events, heart failure, and arrhythmia. One study, the authors note, suggests that cannabis is used by 6% of MI patients younger than 50 years, while another points to an increased risk of stroke for cannabis users between 18 and 44. Here's writing committee chair Robert Page II of the University of Colorado in Aurora speaking with Yael. A lot of the data that we currently have is observational. It's not prospective. Um, There are some limitations. The other issue is the fact that a large number of the studies that have been published are what I call using your your grandfather's marijuana, mm-hmm. <laughs> stuff from the 1960s, um, and not what is being dispensed from these dispensaries in terms of the content of the THC and the CBD that's available. So, you know, honestly, I get questions with regard to this all the time from my cardiologists. And so, therefore, we needed to see, well, what does the evidence suggest? And so that was the preface. Um, behind this. The other is is that providers need to have some form of education mm-hmm. that they can depend upon. Um, again, this is something that's not typically taught within medical and pharmacy schools. And so, therefore, again, you know, providing a source of information um, for our providers, our healthcare providers, is very important. In August, as I said, we pulled back a little bit on some of our longer-form COVID-19 features in order to cover more cardiology news. But not Todd Neal. Todd, I hope you know, has been researching and writing our COVID-19 daily dispatch, day in, day out, with just a few short breaks since March. More recently, he's also spent several weeks exploring the impact of COVID-19, not just on patients and clinical care, but on cardiologists and their practices. Right at the end of last month, after the cutoff for this podcast, Todd's feature story went live, looking at the deep financial impact the pandemic has had on cardiologists. Todd spoke to a range of physicians from different kinds of practices, large and small, for his feature. He also dug up some hard numbers. We titled this story, Walloped by COVID-19, U.S. Cardiology Practices Brace for Slow Recovery. I hope you'll check it out. In the meantime, here's Jerry Blackwell, president and CEO of MedAxiom, an American College of Cardiology company focused on performance improvement in cardiovascular organizations. This is him in conversation with Todd. The economic carnage has tremendously outweighed the medical side of the story in, in my part of the country here. There has been a tremendous impact on the practice of cardiology, and I will go a step farther uh, to say that I believe the impact is indelible, meaning uh, it's it's not, uh, the effects are not going to go away. I don't mean the effects of COVID. COVID will pass, and uh, you know, there there'll be other things that come up over over the course of of years. That's you know that's the that's what happens in, in medicine. Um, but the response to uh, COVID and and how it's um, affected the healthcare system will be indelible. That is that for the August edition of Heart Sounds. Thank you to the entire TCTMD for all of your hard work writing the daily news with everything else going on in your lives. Also to Daniel Goodman, who produced this podcast this month for TCTMD. 
This week, I, along with Mike, Caitlin, and Todd, am jetting off to Amsterdam to cover the European Society of Cardiology... No, wait. We are absolutely not doing that. Alas. Instead, the four of us will be checking out the late breakers and other content from ESC from the comfort of our pajamas... I mean, our home offices. And we won't be getting to see many of you in person, which once again is a real shame. I hope you'll check out our stories from ESC 2020 starting this Saturday. If you like what you hear and what you read and what you watch on TCTMD, let me know. And if you don't like anything, all the more reason to reach out. I'm Shelley Wood too on Twitter, or you can reach me at swood at tctmd.com. Thank you for tuning into Heart Sounds. See you back here next month. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.